This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. I'm going to start recording. But yeah, start recording. Yeah, but the big news this week wasn't like the superconductor or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We could talk. What was, what was the news? It's superconductor. Here's the latest news about the universe. I'm tired of news about just this Earth. Yeah, well, let's start off. We'll start off. I'll start off. You'll ask me that question. We can move into it. I just asked you it. We're so, oh, we started okay. We started? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there was a claim, uh, one of many, that the universe has many different features. One is that the universe was just declared to be twice as old. You think it's bad when people think you're 50. Uh, now it would be like the universe uh, thinks it's 100 years old. I'm just going to interrupt for a second. I realize this is all young. Like, I just realized, you know, Walter White? From uh, Breaking Bad? Yeah, he was 50 years old when he started dealing drugs. Oh, wow. He was just a chemistry teacher. I could deal atomic weapons as a physics teacher. Exactly. And, And Voldemort didn't try to kill Harry Potter until he was 55 years old. Now you're making me feel old. This is ridiculous. Well, Darth Vader. Guess how old Darth Vader was when he started to build the Death Star? Uh, started to build it. It must have been, you know, 35 or so. Yeah, but 40. 40, okay. Thanos was over 65 when he collected the Infinity Gems. And Hannibal was 52 when he escaped from captivity. Oh, and, um, man. Whatever that Genghis was. Khan was only, uh, you know, 42 when he had his first 10,000 kids. So, so you see, you could, you could still create a lot of, so being 50, 100 is the new 50 <laughs> or 50 is the new hundred however that works. That's right. So now 26.8 billion is the new 13.8 billion. That's right. Yeah. So it's part of what I call the academic media hype complex. You know, you get some little un- university, you know, professor like me is squirreling away in their lab or in their, uh, on their blackboard and they come up with some idea and it sounds really interesting to them and maybe they tell one or two of their friends and then they tell the um, their department chair, the department chair tells the dean, the dean tells the media relations uh, at the u- university that goes out to a local uh, newspaper, in this case in Ottawa, Canada. Then the next thing you know, it's picked up by international websites, Twitter, and then all of a sudden Joe Rogan uh, tweets about it. And then Elon Musk follows up that tweet about the age of the universe by speculating on how sketchy and illegitimate dark matter seems to be. So this set off a firestorm. Well, I was going to ask you, there's, I saw some article recently. that for, First off, let me ask you this. How do they know it's 26 billion years instead of 13 billion years old? Is that true? Okay, so is it true? So the the fact is we can't prove something in physics the way we can in math. We can't prove one plus one equals two level stuff. We can prove that there's evidence against something. So we have to ask, does the evidence for you know the physical age of the universe uh, comport to or conflict with a claim of it being 26 billion years old? So right now we see objects, we don't see any objects older than 13 billion years old. And the model that was, you know, conjectured to explain why certain features of the universe appear to be slightly older than anticipated is, is would be like me saying to you, James, we realize that, you know, human beings are very, very advanced. They can build, you know, um, iPhones, they can build, uh, you know, superconductors, and there's no way, therefore, and all we understand about human beings, there's no way that they could have done this 
in just 4 billion years. Therefore, the age of the Earth must be 20 billion years in order for that to happen. In other words, there's a model that's connecting I get it. Uh, the uh, inhabitants of the universe with the origin of it. So let, me, so let me ask a simple question. In general, I thought the model was is that they could tell how many years the light has been traveling from the far furthest away galaxies to determine the age of the universe. Not only that, but what I study, the cosmic microwave background radiation, this little beach ball in the background, that's actually the oldest light in the universe. So that's kind of a God's eye view of what you'd see if you could look into uh, down in our universe from uh, some omniscient deity's per, uh, perspective. So what does that mean? Well, it means that the universe had its first production of visible light or photons. And we can date those photons just like you can date a carbon uh, date or you can date tree rings on trees to get their age. You can look at wrinkles on somebody's face and you can start making estimates. And the more data that are, can be brought to bear, the more accurately that estimate can be. You don't just take one. Are you saying, are you saying I'm old again? <laughs> well, I have a good quote for you. When, a, when an elderly scientist says that something is possible, he is most likely right. Uh, but Arthur C. Clarke said, but when an elderly scientist says something is impossible, he is very likely to be wrong. Uh, and so I don't know if he was talking about you. That's specifically. Good but anyway, good so, uh, so bottom line is there's way more pieces of evidence that point to a universe that's 13.8 billion years old with a very small uncertainty of just tens of millions of years, which is big by human standards. So is that because the light from the microwave cosmic background radiation appears to be 13 billion light years from us. So imagine, you ever see these crime dramas like, you know, CSI, you know, uh, uh, Atlanta or wherever you are? No, no. Okay, well, these crime dramas, oftentimes there'll be a murder, okay? And the police will come into the murder scene. And the first thing they'll do is they'll take the temperature of the body. And that tells them some very important information. It tells them if the body's at room temperature, we know it started at 98.6 degrees, Right. But if it's at room temperature, it means that it's colder, which means that it must have died some time ago. And knowing that the body is mostly made of vodka, no, I mean of water in my case, that cooling off period can be calculated based on the extremely well-known properties of water. So too, with the light that we see, it, we measure the temperature not of a body but of the universe, and we can say we know exactly the temperature it formed which it formed when hydrogen forms, it forms at not, uh, at hydrogen forms at not 98.6 degrees, it forms at 3,000 degrees. So we know that temperature very accurately when, when it was formed, and now we measure it at 3 degrees Kelvin. These uh, temperatures are measured in Kelvin, which is absolute temperature scale. That tells us it's, it's cooled off for a specific amount of time, which is extremely accurately known. Okay. So that's the, that's the number one piece of evidence on the age of the universe. It has to be connected to a model of how the universe is expanding, which Hubble and Einstein showed is dependent on what the universe is made of. Now, Right, so, so here's the question I have. It's, very, it's actually, when you start getting into, okay, first you factor in, if, it's, if, we, me if we measure it at this XYZ temperature, that means it's, it's so many years old. But at the same time, the universe is expanding, so the, the universe is expanding faster than the speed of light. So everything goes haywire in the math then. And furthermore, when the 
you know, the light or the readings from whatever it is we're studying come to us, we're seeing it at a, at a different point than where it is now because the universe is expanding and it's, and it's also everything's moving further in distance from us and, and so on. So it just gets all confusing to me. Well, I mean, it, things don't go haywire. I, I don't think, I wouldn't agree with that description. We can actually calculate very accurately what happens to objects beyond a certain distance. You and I aren't expanding faster than the speed of light. It's galaxies. No, but the universe is. Parts of the universe are. Uh, but not all of the universe. And it's critical. It's not like there's some you know, galactic pileup where galaxies that are moving at 99% of the speed of light are all located, and then a galaxy that's at uh, 101% of the speed of light are going, you know, then we just can't even see them anymore. Um, so we need a model to explain how those things behave. But actually, it's the simplest possible model that describes the dynamics of how the universe is expanding. I teach it to my, you know, kind of, uh, you know, senior level cosmology students. Uh, and it takes a few minutes to explain that the only model that's consistent with what we observe is the simplest model there could possibly be. In other words, you and I could be expanding away as galaxies and we could be expanding as the 97th power of the distance between us. That's a possibility. Uh, or the 63rd or the 25th or, but it's not. It's not expanding as any of those powers except for the linear proportionality between us, our distance. So in other words, if you double the distance between yourself and another galaxy, let's say you look at Andromeda, which is 3 million light years away, and then you look at another galaxy in um, you know, Ophiuchus, my favorite constellation, and it's 6 million light years away, that galaxy is expanding away from us if those two were, which are not, but anyway, that is expanding twice as fast as Andromeda galaxy. It's a very simple relationship, and it's the only one that can preserve the features of the universe that we are capable, or the only one that can explain the features of the universe that we observe. That we observe. But there are parts of the universe that we'll never be able to observe because, because the universe itself, again, parts of it are expanding faster than the speed of light. And so there's some galaxies that, we, that are so far away, their light will never reach us, basically. So right, right now in Dubai, someone baby was just born, and we can't observe that. What does that imply? I mean, it's, it's a finitude of the speed of light. It has nothing to do with the, with the expansion of the universe, necessarily. And the unobservability of something is called a horizon. So you can't see boats on, that are past your horizon. It doesn't mean there aren't boats there. And they could be moving arbitrarily. It doesn't mean say anything about their, their properties, their kinematics, their dynamics. So I fail to see the controversy in what you're asking. So, so how do they know? How do they come up with that? That it's actually 26 billion years old instead of 13 billion years old. So they kind of make a hybrid, a melange, a, a fruit salad of these different models. They actually use the Big Bang, and then to explain features uh, that couldn't be explained otherwise. To make as again, let's go back to my analogy of the discovery of iPhones, calling into question the mere 4 billion year old age of the Earth. What they're saying is they're looking at galaxies. These galaxies are too well-formed. They're, they're spinning like spirals, pinwheels, and they claim that our understanding of the formation of galaxies does not allow enough time for that to occur unless the universe is twice the age that we think it is. This is one person's claim. To your point, though, that we already have very established models about how to calculate the ages of different things based on if they were much different, if our, calc if our model was much different, the universe wouldn't be what it is today. 
So why aren't they? Why don't they have the same model as you in terms of calculating these ages? Because they're trying to fit to a specific answer for a specific reason, and you could do that. There's nothing preventing you from doing that. But the problem is the motivation to do that is not sound. They're saying again, which is more complicated to explain: the creation of an iPhone or the creation of the whole Earth? Uh, just speaking as as a as a cosmic phenomenon, um, you know, or creation of a star. Um, versus the creation of the iPhone. How much complexity, Kolmogorov complexity it's called, how many statements do you have to make to, or in order to explain the formation of a sun, let me say, or a star, which is necessary and sufficient to create a planetary system like the Earth? Or how many steps do I have to explain to lead up to the history and construction of the iPhone, which is, which is more complex? So, so, so you're saying that using this model of complexity... Um, obviously the iPhone is easier to explain than the creation of a star. No, no, no. And I so think the it's the other way around. The star relies on oh, gravity and nuclear uh, fusion. That's it. Um, you may not believe that those are easy to understand, but there's only I could explain those in a finite set of statements that's much smaller than the finite set of instructions to Apple to make an iPhone. There's way more complexity. It doesn't mean it's more complicated, it just means it's more complex. There's more information required to understand the uh, the process known as iPhone construction versus nuclear fusion. I see. So, so then these people, they're trying to. You're saying it's rel- It's easier to explain the age of the universe than the age of a galaxy, and and they're kind of doing it in reverse. I wouldn't say easier to explain. I would say the models are simpler, and they're they're trying to. They're calling into question the simpler model because of evidence from the more complexified phenomena, namely the galaxy. So let me ask you a question. This is this is. Rel- I like this model of what did you call it? Kam- Kamagora complexity. Complexity. Mm-hmm. I like this model, and I feel like this could be used to explain and identify reasonable conspiracy theories versus unreasonable conspiracy <laughs> theories. So if it takes if it takes more thing if it takes more sentences to explain how some theory is true, then it's most likely a conspiracy theory that's just ridiculous. Like. It, it, yeah, you used it, to call that your conspiracy number. Yeah, the exactly. number of people it that are required take... to maintain a conspiracy, which I loved, and I actually employed that recently in the context of these UFO sightings that I want to talk to you about. Yeah, so it seems like this could be applied. It's like the same type of idea that if something is too complicated to explain, like like the whole idea, which I I, I wrote recently on a Facebook group we're, we're both in, the whole idea of the nine eleven truthers is that too many people would have to be trusted to keep the truth if 9-11 was a conspiracy. Right, right exactly. So, you know, mm-hmm. and to, yeah, go no, ahead. I was just going to say, in the context of, of this complexity theory, um, when, you, when you think about how uh, complex or not a, a phenomenon is, you can actually, as Kolmogorov said, what's the smallest computer program to describe this process? Mm-hmm. So you've seen like the Mandelbrot set, this like classic fractal set. So that's yeah. actually, you can write down the Mandelbrot set, the general generating function very easily. It's just like one equation of complex plane. But to actually, in, like to show you the picture of it, 
requires, you know, millions of bits of computer information to make the actual artistic representation. And you could represent a simpler one by taking away one more bit, and then I'll be a simpler one. So in an analogy to your conspiracy number, yeah, the more you add on, it doesn't grow linearly. Like if you double the number of people, it actually grows exponentially in a, or geometrically in a, in a conspiracy, right? Because not only do you have to worry about, like, let's say there's, there's three of us, you, me, and Jay, and we conspire to, you know, to hide the existence of aliens. Well, I mean, the two of us are married, and we have kids, a lot of kids. You know, Jay doesn't. We're not married to no, each no, other, no, by the right, way. But, right. yeah. Thank you, Jay. Thank you, Jay. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, Jay's got this, you know, just this cohort of, of, uh, of, of wannabe wives, you know, the next uh, Mrs. Jay Yao. Um, so now we have to keep them apart from, from knowing what we know all, just individually. Then I have to make sure my wife doesn't talk to Robin et cetera, et cetera. So it grows exponentially. So that, that means, and then the one lacuna, to use a loaded professor word, which you're admonishing me never to do, James, the one lacuna of that, of your model, is it didn't take into account another correlation, not just of space, but of time. Like you have to maintain this over time. There should be some altature yeah. complexity that also captures the relevant time scales and coherence links between these things. So if my child is going to talk to Robin, you know, someday, well, then they have to meet and they have to overlap and my kid has to be old enough, you know. So anyway, it makes it much, 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 much less likely to maintain this. So getting back to galaxies and the age of the universe, the same thing is at play here. You need far more complexity to describe a galaxy with, with hundreds of billions of stars in it than to just describe one star. I mean, that's, that's obvious, right? So... For these reasons, the the notion that you're going to try to call into question, you know, it's like calling into question evolution, you know, the process of evolution, which is very simple to describe how evolution via natural selection takes place. You're going to throw that into, you know, into doubt because there are people born without opposing digits on a case. You know, it, it doesn't make sense. And, or, or that, you know, sometimes people are born with six fingers. So therefore, you know, there's not enough time for evolution to make that happen. So let's throw out evolution. It, it's fundamentally not the most sound logic. It's, it's possible, but it's not sound, as sound. Right. It's almost like they're creating a new logic to explain that evolution didn't happen because someone's born with six fingers, as opposed to just relying on this simple model of evolution that we understand and just assuming that there's going to be Correct. outliers. Exactly right. Yep. And so, and so, okay, let me, let me, you know, switching away from the age of the universe, I read an article recently that uh, we talked in our very first podcast about the reasons why the universe, the, the Big Bang not only occurred, but the universe is expanding. And so now there's, I read an article recently that because of recent images taken by the James Webb telescope, they, there are some people out there who think, the universe is not expanding and is stationary. Now you explain to me step-by-step step why the universe has to be expanding, which implies that a Big Bang did occur at some point. And because it, it it's expanding from, from nothing, basically. And, but but this, these images from the James Webb telescope are showing that some galaxies are expanding, are, are, are the further away they are, the smaller they are in a way that would be expected in a model of the universe that says the universe is stationary. Yes, that is one, that is one consequence of this, uh, of this conjecture. I think the other one is that the, uh, the structure of the galaxies themselves is too mature to have occurred in a mere 13.8 billion years. So 
the problem is um, you can take those and accept those at face value, just as Ptolemy and Aristotle and others had to add on epicycles into their models in order to explain the inconsistency between the other observations. If you treat, if you treat uh, the observation of galaxies and you say, well, what is that on a par with? Is that on a par with the following observation? That all but about 100 galaxies in the universe are, seem to be redshifted, i.e. moving away from us out of 100 billion galaxies. So only one one billionth of all the galaxies we can see are receding away from us at summit great fractions of the speed of light. In a static universe, that is very difficult to explain. And so in order to explain those data, you can have your own models, but you can't have your own data. In order to explain those models, these proponents of the steady state model have to introduce new unseen phenomenon such as the fact that light, as the universe, as the as the light propagates through the universe, it loses energy and becomes more and more red as the light travels through distance. But in reality, in their universe, the light is infinitely big. The universe is infinitely big. So, given enough t um, uh, propagation length and time, there are enough decaying times of the photon's energy to then appear more and more red. It's highly contrived. They admit themselves. There's no mechanism to do that. And furthermore, that phenomenon should be manifest not only on cosmic scales, we should be able to test it in the laboratory with much, much higher precision because we can control the variables uh, much more precisely. So we don't see anything like that. We don't see a, like you send me a, a bat signal and it's white and then I see it and it's totally red because we live 3,000 miles away from each other. That should happen at some level and we don't see any evidence of that. So it's highly contrived. Is it possible? Sure, it is possible. But the preponderance of evidence suggests it's, it's completely wrong. And they're relying on the one observation of maturity of very complex structures, galaxies, in order to invalidate a much, much simpler paradigm, namely the universe is expanding. So, it, so again, it's a, it's a case where people are, it's, a, it's another case where people are observing something and then using their imagination to fit it into a, to find a model that fits with the few examples they're observing. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's what scientists do. We, we compare models to data, or we might discover something serendipitously, like the cosmic background radiation that I study was, you know, we weren't looking for it, it was discovered. Uh, and then it was found to be consistent with other pieces of evidence, namely the observation of galaxies. You have to realize the observation of galaxies receding from us in all but 100 out of 100 billion cases is completely different branch of science than that of studying the uh, amplitude and energy of microwave energy. So those are completely different things. This is different as like biology, you know, suggests an age of the planet. And then geology suggests, that's amazing if you could do that rather than just two examples from biology or two examples from geology. And we have literally hundreds of pieces of evidence that seem to agree with a much, much more ancient universe. Hold on a second. I'm being paged. Um, because you are Dr. Brian right. Keating, physicist. Um, there might be a physics emergency somewhere. <laughs> I'm getting quantum that entangled. Signal, signal. That's with, what did it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, okay. So, it's, so two examples where some people observe something unique, but then they contrive a model to fit it as opposed to the standard models that have been 
observed billions of times. That's right. So, yeah. So I, I read another article recently. I'm, I'm giving you all the conspiracy theories in awesome. physics that I've read lately. Um, um, I read that there was probably matter that exists, some kind of matter that existed before the Big Bang. I didn't read the article. Actually, I just saw the headline. Uh, I haven't seen it, but it sounds completely bogus. What, what um, Does it say anything about the matter? Or do you recall anything about it? I mean, energy before no. the Big Bang doesn't even make sense to me. Um, you could have a you could have a whole universe, by the way, uh, but in the context of the Big Bang, it's not exactly clear, you know, what that means. If they're talking about like a cyclic universe where the universe b- bounces and oscillates, like we did talk about you know, a couple of years ago, yes, it's possible there was matter and energy in the preceding universe, but in the context of a singular Big Bang that happened once, that doesn't make sense. But we know that the Big Bang and. Uh, uh, the, the Big Bang probably didn't just happen once. It probably there was like there's like infinite Big Bangs. Isn't that like Again, the current you know, theory? Probably you know saying it's probable. I, I there are a lot of scientists, very eminent scientists that don't believe in that. That don't think the universe is is an infinite part of what's called the multiverse, where it's you know coming into and out of existence at different locations in what's called the multiverse. We have baby universes nucleating. That is a consequence of the theory of inflation. But isn't there like it, the universe? The Big Bang happened. It goes. It goes all the way out. Then it starts com- collapsing that's, in on itself. That's one model it, called the cyclic or bouncing model. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that is not. Yeah. But that's what not model? really uh, what is meant with the multiverse. That is a form of multiverse, but it's not the multiverse that people normally talk about, where you have an infinite number of universes parallel to ours in space and in time, where Big Bangs are going on, big crunches are happening. They have different speeds of light, different laws of nature, perhaps. That's the multiverse that that is, you know, the preponderance of cosmologists working today believe in. I'm reserving judgment, but that is one of the goals of BICEP and Simon's Observatory to provide physical evidence for the precursor to the multiverse, which is called inflation. So, but even if you take the cyclic one where the Big Bang expands, then the Big Crunch happens, then it goes back into a tiny dot, and then there's a Big Bang again. Even in that one, might there be leftover matter from a, a prior Big Bang? Yes, that didn't make it all the way back. Yes, in the but Big it would crunch? be so disorganized uh, to be as to be basically indistinguishable from matter created at the origin of our current observable universe. That said, there is one exotic form of matter which is proposed to penetrate through such a nucleation event from a previous universe to a current universe. And that's matter in the form of a black hole or you know, curvature energy in the form of a black hole. So some people like Roger Penrose, who's been a guest on my show many times, uh, he won the Nobel Prize uh, three years ago. And his theory is that there are black holes that do penetrate through the, um, the expansion that leads to the nucleation of a new universe. It's very complicated theory and very few cosmologists take it seriously. All right, and then final conspiracy theory that I saw an article about is that dark matter doesn't actually exist. Ah. So that I would say is less of a conspiracy theory and an actual matter of honest-to-goodness scientific research. There's two ways we can account for the most prominent evidence that there is so-called dark matter in galaxies at distances from the Milky Way galaxy. Um, and the evidence for those uh, for some strange phenomena occurring in these galaxies is overwhelming. The evidence that the matter that we're made up of, the protons, the neutrons, the croutons, uh, 
that that is the dominant form of energy is completely excluded in the form of matter. And we're also not the dominant form of energy. There's something called dark energy. But let's stick to one conspiracy at a time. Dark matter is a proposal to explain the bizarre behavior of the rotation of galaxies and the behavior of giant clusters of galaxies and the behavior of the cosmic background radiation that I study that relies on a particle of mass that has mass that is made of matter, but that type of matter does not interact with electricity and magnetism. That is to say, it doesn't interact with light, it doesn't absorb light, and it doesn't emit light. That has been called dark matter or dunka material since this guy Fritz Zwicky in the 1930s kind of conjectured it. Uh, now, there's another theory that suggests that the universe is made up of um, ordinary matter only, like protons and neutrons and electrons, but uh, the universe has a different form of the gravitational force field that just appears as if there's missing matter, but this is only manifest on scales of a galaxy itself, and that's called modified Newtonian gravity or MOND dynamics. And MOND suggests that the laws of Einstein, or the laws of Newton, not Einstein, just the laws of Isaac Newton have to be modified when you get to the scale of a galaxy, that there are hidden um, uh, forces that make the rotation properties of galaxies change in a very accurately calculable fashion. So these two things stand in opposition, a new form of unseen matter and a new modification of the laws of gravity. Now, we've seen this exact same story in the history of physics. And it has to do with the discovery of the planet Neptune. So the planet Neptune was discovered observationally by noting the weird behavior of the planet Uranus, or as you call it, Uranus. Can't get around. Everybody laughs. Everybody in the world laughs at that one all the time. I put up a poll on Twitter a couple months ago. I said, uh, do you support my proposal to rename Uranus? It's been incredibly embarrassing to astronomers. Nobody's calling it uh, Uranus. You know, nobody's. And that is that better? Urine us? Is that better than Uranus? No, not really. Let's be honest. Then I said, who's with me? Let's change the name to Urectum. And it got a lot of attention. I mean, those boys at NASA were hot in the tr- now, anyway. So uh, these astronomers, Leverrier and others, looked at. Uranus's, Uranus's behavior, and they saw that it was wiggling around in a way it shouldn't, indicative of an unseen chunk of dark matter, i.e. the planet Neptune, which was heretofore un- invisible, that was orbiting beyond it and influencing its orbit, causing it to behave this way. That was an explanation. And then, uh, and that was true, that they predicted where Neptune would be observed, telescopes turned towards it, 1700s discovered the, the sixth planet, right? So, a seventh planet. So this is amazing. And in fact, it was so convincing that in the 1900s, when uh, accurate measurements of the planet Mercury's orbit began to get measured in the early 1900s, people assumed that there must be a strange hidden planet called Vulcan, invisible to us because it was closer to the sun than Mercury. And it was uh, tugging on Mercury's orbit in a strange way that had been known about for, for quite some time before that. And so there was a proposal, let's solve this problem via another chunk of dark matter, invisible matter, in this case, the planet Vulcan. 
Now, Einstein came along and said, no, 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 no. We don't have to conjecture some strange chunk of, of dark matter this time. We have to instead postulate that the laws of gravity and orbits of planets like Mercury get afflicted and affected much more egregiously the closer they are to the sun and that you cannot blindly apply Newton's laws. So he fixed that and, of course, was right and solved this problem using what's called the theory of general relativity. So in one case, dark matter was a solution. In the other case, changing gravity was a solution. We're exactly in that state right now when it comes to unseen potential matter called dark matter or strange modifications to gravity called MOND at large scales. Now, and again, couldn't it be just like how there was a planet Neptune, some, some uh, other large piece of matter, a planet, that we couldn't observe? Couldn't that be the case, exact case here? So we're seeing unusual things happening with galaxies. But again, there are galaxies out there that could be larger than anything we've ever observed, but they're too far away for their light to have gotten to us. So there's no way we can observe them right now. And that could be affecting the galaxies we are trying to measure. Uh, exactly. Along the lines of this exact uh, proposal was, was conjectured 20 or 30 years ago in what became known as machos. So uh, macho is an object that's massive, it's compact, and it only exists in the halo of galaxies where this dark matter phenomenon appears to be manifest. And <clears throat> when we had a, an observation of dark matter in other galaxies, it was, it was thought, let's go look in the Milky Way galaxy and its halo, the outskirts of this giant, enormous collection of 100 billion suns. Let's look for objects themselves that are like chunks of matter, planets, uh, even black holes, which would not, which fit the bill of dark matter. They absorb light. They don't emit light. Um, let's look for these objects. And to do that, what astronomers did is use uh, the space telescope and other telescopes to look at another galaxy really far away called the uh, Small Magellanic Cloud, which is a satellite of the Milky Way galaxy, which has about a billion stars in it, and then look for periodic, or non-periodic, just for look for brightening and dimming of light from stars that happen to be co-aligned such that when the, this macho goes between the line of sight from that star in a distant galaxy on its way to the Earth, the light gets brighter and it gets dimmer, and it does so um, non-periodically. A planet would do it periodically, and we, we could see that. But uh, this would happen once, one, and done. This just ma passing through town, a black hole is moving in front of a distant star. And guess what? They discovered the all-toucher objects. They discovered hundreds of them, imputing that there's probably millions or maybe billions of these things in our galaxy alone. But that amount of matter is pitifully, woefully inadequate to explain the amount of deficit between the ordinary matter that we're made up of and this missing matter that we call dark matter. So they do exist. Uh, we don't know exactly what they are. They could be planets the size of Jupiter. They could be black holes. We're getting, learning more about them. But, um, but to date, we don't know exactly what they are, only that they're insufficient uh, and they're incapable of explaining dark matter holistically. So dark matter might be 
some invisible particles as as theorized, or it could be just some large chunks of matter like black holes or other galaxies that we have to date been unable to observe. You're saying the ones we have observed show a pattern that's too small for us to say that explains the 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 dark matter situation, but it could be the case that with distance some things, enough things could be not observed that maybe it's the reason for this dark matter theory. Well, yeah. I mean, they're, they're right now the main hope of people that believe dark matter is a particle is that it's not a macho, that it's a wimp, a weakly interacting massive particle. So these guys are trolling and gaslighting each other. These astronomers know how to have a good time. So when the... Uh, if, if they run into each other at conferences, are there are, is anybody ever angry at each other because they believe in machos yeah. versus wimps? Like you oh, get yeah, like yeah. those kind of politics. Yeah, I've in had physics. on people that you know hate to talk about the other alternative models, and then people think there's a co conspiracy to suppress and reject publications, etc. Yeah, oh yeah, there's all sorts of human behavior that's ugly as can be on display. So certainly, I see I see that between like string theorists and. You know, like you're an experimental physicist, so you kind of, it's not that you hate anybody, but like you don't really subscribe to the string theorists and they don't subscribe, they don't play in your yeah, sandbox. I mean, it's, it's, that's different than I am a uh, loop quantum gravity believer and, and not a string theorist. Yeah, so they, they will fight with each other. I, I say, you know, the biggest misconception of my field is that my job is to prove theorists right, or prove them, you know, that, they're, that they got it right or something. My job is the opposite, is to prove them wrong. I, I, you know, I set out to try to prove everybody wrong, and then hopefully what's left is a little bit closer to the actual truth than we would have realized other ways, uh, otherwise. So in reality, you know, the, these battles or whatever, I just spoke with Peter Bogassian on his podcast, and, you know, we were talking about, like, all these different scientific organizations from the World Health Organization to the CDC to Scientific American to Nature that they've you know, they've lost so much credibility. And he's like, well, what's the general public person supposed to do? Like, how do you know if you're not a, who do you trust? And my whole thing is, you know, you should avoid trust and belief in people when they do make it tribal and ideological. And you should think like, well, what's this person's moral bank account? Like, yes, everyone's been wrong. I was wrong. You know, we claimed as part of a team that claimed we discovered evidence for the multiverse, basically in inflation. We had to retract that and that was painful and embarrassing and so forth. You know, we didn't make a blunder, but we were over um, overreaching in terms of what we could interpret the data to say. So we had to retract that. My my conjecture is that um, when somebody comes up with an idea like, oh, the universe is 26 billion years old, and their PR office at every university has goes to the newspapers and then Joe Rogan, that that is not um, without its perils. And in fact, what scientists should do. I'm talking about scientists, not just like media. They should have a budget. And that budget should have two, you know, kind of uh, segregated accounts. And one account should be for publicizing the information that was acquired after all at great expense, time, and treasure supplied by U.S. taxpayers, in my case. And that should be, you know, maybe 66% of the budget. And then 33% of the budget should be reserved for the retraction of that not to say that it's, you know, half as likely that I'll be retracted, but the cost to contain and retract information is, is so much more um, difficult to do. Uh, to get Rogan to then issue a retweet, you know, that I was wrong and Brian Keating, 
you know, uh, set me straight. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. I'm not going to ask him to do that. But the point being, when you make an announcement that you discovered the Big Bang, then it appears on A1 above the fold of the New York Times, as it did for Bicep 2, as you know. And then the retraction, if it ever comes, comes on page B17 of the Saturday edition. And it's a horrible thing to communicate to the public. I still get scientists sometimes who say, oh, wow, you were part of the team that discovered the, uh, you know, the Big Bang. I'm like, you're a scientist. Like, forget about lay people. They think that all the time. And I'm like, the name of my book is Losing the Nobel Prize. Like, spoiler alert here. Um, nevertheless, it is uh, because the media has a sensationalist attitude. And we as scientists need to counter that because if we don't, the public support and trust in science will be irrevocably diminished. So let me, let me ask you a question. Like you say you were embarrassed to make this retraction. How embarrassed? Like, were you really, were you worried about your career? Um, it's said. Would you, were you worried you were going to be fired as a UCSD professor? I wasn't worried about that. Um, for one thing, the, you know, the kind of retraction wasn't of the kind that we, said that we discovered, you know, um, uh, goblins and ghosts. It wasn't like we said that we made faster-than-light travel neutrinos. It wasn't that we discovered life, you know, on a planet and we had a... We didn't make a blunder. We made a very highly accurate measurement that's actually far superior to any measurement that my subsequent competitor teams have been able to even approach. However, the interpretation, if we had just published it, as we have discovered this pattern of, of light... And, um, and said maybe in a footnote, it's consistent with inflation, but it could be other things. There'd be nothing to retract. In other words, it was merely the overreach that we did was merely, not merely, it was to say that we discovered the imprimatur of the Big Bang in the inflationary universe, which comes concomitantly with the multiverse, et cetera. So there was nothing really, to, it wasn't a blunder. You know, I didn't leave my thumb on the lens, you know, on the front of the lens when I took a picture like I do with my kids. It was far less kind of um, amateurish and what, and what have you. As I say, the proof is that we're still the best, you know, constraints on this phenomena that have ever been made. But what's interesting to me is that, okay, perhaps, you know, let's leave out the Nobel Prize. Let's say you never had to do the retraction and life would have been great for you in academia and as a professor and you would be well known as the physicist who did this. But I would say the fact that you had this, negative experience. Like I know you've had ups and downs in your career. You discuss this in your book. We've discussed it on the podcast, but this maybe is the most well-known. This is not just a personal up and down. This was one that involved all the physicists in the world because it was a major, you're discussing the big bang, the major thing that physicists or cosmologists study. And this, retra this retraction, which then morphed into your book, losing the Nobel prize, which really put you on the map in some ways, and not just the physicist map, but it, it, it's a writing a book merges you with pop culture and talking about losing the Nobel Prize, which is, has an element of humor in the title. Uh, and then you're on all the podcasts, and we're going to discuss you're going on Joe Rogan's podcast in a few weeks. It's almost like, are you glad? <laughs> are you glad you had to make this retraction? And that led to a bunch of events that really now made you. In, put you into not only a physicist career, but yeah, a yeah. public figure. Let me answer that. Let me just, uh, let me just check my ego for one second. It's a very flattering question. Now, seriously, let me check my, uh, my air conditioner unit is broken. So uh, hold on one second. I'll be right back. Hopefully Jay can edit this out. 
Nope, I'm putting it in. Now everyone is <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> Brian's kidding's yeah. AC is broken. No wonder he couldn't find the Big Bang. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Fix air conditioning. Yeah, everyone needs to know. Even though you're a successful physicist, your AC could still broke. No, I think I think the fact that his AC broke means, of course, I'm not going to pay attention when he predicts the Big Bang. Sorry, Jake. Oh, we were just chatting about the weather. All right, so am I glad? Are we back? Are we live? Okay. (laughs) Am I glad that we made this? Um, So, I was fired from my first postdoc experience. Postdoc is sort of the first job you get after getting your PhD. You're trying to become a professor, trying to prove your mettle, trying to show that you're an independent scientist, independent of your PhD advisor. And I got fired from Stanford University, which is arguably one of the best, if not the best, in this field. And I am more glad that I got fired from there than any you know, purportedly negative thing that could have ever happened in my life. Your career also is very, you're very young then. And so you probably hadn't really, I mean, here you were a postdoc at Stanford, which kind of implies everything that happened before then was a success for you. I was, yeah, I wouldn't say I was like the wonderkin, but I, I would say that I had uh, taken, I was a very hard worker. I still am a very hard worker. I wanted to, you know, kind of make a name for myself. I'd never been fired from a job. So just at a, you know, human level. But, um, but I was glad that I got fired in retrospect. And even at the time, because it did lead to me connecting to my eventual mentor, Andrew Lang, who tragically, as I describe in the book, committed suicide um, n- not long after we started the experiment that would then later lead to the events of losing the Nobel Prize. And so I miss him you know, tremendously. He was a father figure to me, um, in some ways deeper than my own father. He was, How old was he? Uh, he was only in his late 40s. And can I ask, why do you think he, he did that? He, I think he was you know, battling some psychologically either undiagnosed, unmedicated, maybe medicated, um, issues. He had gone through a divorce. He had gone through, you know, he had children from his wife's first marriage or his ex-wife's first marriage. Um, she ended up winning the Nobel Prize in chemistry, Francis Arnold, a few years later. Um, uh, but they were like the ultimate power couple, you know, attractive, young, brilliant scientists, both at Caltech. And I think it was a complicated thing. And, and I think, you know, after they got separated, divorced, what have you, he tried to you know, maybe, you know, have, have uh, relationships with, with other women and maybe it didn't work out, but nobody really knows except, you know, I wish that he had just reached out to me as I did to him so many times. The thing that was so surprising is like, mm. it, it wouldn't have been like uh, non-obvious to him that everybody would have like just wanted to help him. I mean, he was universally admired mm. and loved and, and just super popular professor, brilliant won everything but the Nobel Prize, had great, you know, success financially and other I don't know. It's it's very tough to say, but but you know, getting back to my favorite subject, which is me, when I when I got fired from Stanford, my boss at Stanford had been his postdoc before she started at Stanford, and she graciously in my mind connected me to him and then he hired me almost on the spot and I accepted it on the spot when I interviewed with him and moved down to Caltech and then that later led to Bicep. And that led to me getting a job at UC San Diego. And that led to me meeting my wife and having my children. And there's just no way that that would have happened otherwise. Yeah, maybe I would have met a different wife and maybe we would have had different kids. And But when you see something that's perfectly organized and like that you're, there's so many more ways that you can be made unhappy, James, than made ha- more happy. We've talked about this. That's called, I call it the entropy of happiness. There's no 
available space where I could double your happiness like on demand. But in fact, there's probably at least, you know, I don't want to even talk about it. As I say, with fathers and and sons and, and children and daughters and why you, you know that you have infinite downside risk exposure, right? We've talked about Jim Simons, who's lost two sons. Just like, and he's one of the richest people in the world. Do you want to trade places with him? Absolutely not. Would you, wouldn't you be a lot happier? No way. So I think it's important to realize that you can always be made more. So right now, I can't be made more happy very easily. I mean, if my wife, if she's listening, I don't know. Honey, can we have one more kid? You know, she usually hits me in the very place that I need to produce that child. Um, so I just feel blessed uh, on every realm. And yet I could imagine much worse scenarios. So all I'm saying is, well, there, it's clear when somebody says, oh, well, you would have married somebody else. It, it's just clear that I wouldn't be as happy. There's just no way to convince me that I'd be as happy. So anyway, I'm very glad. Now, you asked me about bicep. Um, am I glad that we didn't discover it? No. I mean, I knew the night before the announcement was made in front of TV cameras, newspapers, uh, CNN, uh, you know, all these other scientists without me being present there, the man who had, you know, arguably created the experimental, you know, predecessor that led to bicep too. I knew the night before that press conference at Harvard Center for Astrophysics that I would not win the Nobel Prize. And that's when the name of the book came into my mind, Losing the Nobel Prize. Because I knew that if we were right and we did detect the Big Bang's origin story, that I would be excluded from credit because I wasn't at the press conference. Harvard had kind of edged me out. And if anything, you know, should have worried about it. I think it would have been Harvard, you know, the repercussions of this retraction. And a lot of my friends and, and alumni of Harvard have said, stop donating to Harvard and, and realize, you know, the professor who was the lead PI of the project, Professor John Kovac, he's still a professor there and, you know, reasonably friendly with him. But a lot of people thought, like, this is outrageous. He got tenure after this event. You know, he shouldn't have. I don't feel one way or another. I'm glad that he's, that he's happy and he has, a, you know, a good life. But, you know, UCSD had no reason to really pursue me in that sense. Okay. I guess my, my, my point is not that you would be happier. My point is really that you, you took a, a real big highlight negative event of yeah. your career. In this case, you know, making a, you know, a statement that's very, that was very important statement in, in the cosmology world. And then having to publicly, be, you know, have it dismissed as incorrect, but you took that and you converted it. It's like an alchemy. You converted it into gold. You converted it into something much more positive. And this is really the inspiration in your story, not the physics itself, but how you took a life event that was really, I mean, there's lots of types of bad life events, like, like a divorce or like going broke or experiencing some other kind of loss. And the key is, you know, I don't think all the time there's an alchemy that can transform it in, into good. Like often if you get diagnosed with a terminal disease, it's, I think it's much more difficult to convert that into something good, although it's not impossible. But I think a lot of times people underestimate the power of this kind of personal alchemy that one can do. And you were able to successfully do it. And not everyone can do that. Imagine if you're on, or imagine a lot of, a lot of professors it's the end of their lives practically when they don't get yeah. tenure, right? Do you know, like, I mean, not to talk about suicide again, but professor, professors kill themselves sometimes when they don't get tenure because that's their whole life as academia. And, but there's, oh, my feeling is 
in those types of situations that, that essentially aren't terminal diseases, there's always there should always be some alchemy that converts it into personal gold. Yeah. No, I agree. And that's the lemon into lemonade, if not the noble gold. Yeah, I think you're right. But no, I mean, I, I, in my heart of hearts, do I wish that we won? I wish, I wish that we were right, you know, in the sense that we didn't make a mistake because this, this is a great discovery and, you know, it would have saved Jim Simons uh, you know, about $100 million and wouldn't have to, no, I'm just kidding, we, we still would build it. Um, but to, to advance scientific knowledge, the earlier that's done, James, the better. And if this is true, uh, you know, then I think I, even if I didn't win, and I, and I admit as such, I shouldn't have won the Nobel Prize, you know, potentially, but, uh, but, but I wish that, that the result had held up. Forget about the Nobel Prize itself, because that brings up a lot of jealousy, and, and, but just that the scientific result, because I want our scientific knowledge to it. This is the most dangerous time, I think, in history, where, where people know so little about science and technology, but rely on it for everything, and and we play around with things like nuclear holocaust and and you know uh, and viruses and AI and all sorts of dangers, and just the average person knows nothing about it. So my goal and my YouTube channel and my podcast is to like bring together the greatest minds in science and technology. If they're not uh, adept at public speaking, that's fine. They're engaging with the public through me, which is their moral obligation. Otherwise, I think that they're you know, mostly dead weight. <laughs> and yeah, they can stick in the laboratory. That's great. But I'll, I'll be out there publicizing what they do. Uh, and if they're you know too scared, I, I often get this. Jane, oh, don't expect the scientists to speak eloquently. You know, they're you know that requires a lot of training. And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. I came out of the womb, uh, you know, knowing about relativistic quantum mechanics. I, you know, I, I didn't have to work at that at all. That was easy for. No, it's bullshit. It's it's something that they just use as an excuse to either leave it to other people. But guess what? Guess what? Other people, like the lay people, say things like, oh, I'm not a scientist or I'm not a math person. Don't expect me to say that or do that. You know what I mean, James? That that in this sense, uh, we yeah. outsource. It's like that line from A Few Good Men. You know, when Nick Nicholson tells Cruz, you know, you want me on that wall. You know, even if I'm corrupt, even if I'm crooked, it, you need me on that wall. Like scientists are needed out there so that the layperson doesn't have to learn that much about science because it's hard. But but it's an interesting thing, like you know, and there's this whole ever since the pandemic, there's this whole battle between either you're like pro science or you're anti science, and they, they forgot that it, it's it's kind of the gray in the middle that creates science. It's like the people who are who don't trust the science, but who have a combination of knowledge and common sense and skepticism to explore new areas. But there there is room for lay people to have opinions that don't necessarily agree with science, it's a delicate balance because if you believe in a flat earth, when obviously the earth is round, there's something a little crazy. So there's, there's some balance in the middle where you need to, you need to go back to, I'm not going to trust that UFOs exist just because some guy is testifying in front of Congress and he worked for government. Like I have to, maybe I trust it, but maybe I don't. And I'm not, I wouldn't be wrong in either case. Like and it's the same thing with science. Like, oh, the scientist says this XYZ theory or vaccine or whatever is correct. It's it's okay. It should be okay for me to express skepticism. I'm not saying I'm anti-vaccine or whatever. I'm just saying it needs to be okay to express skepticism on these things. And unfortunately, yeah, it's no, not I think anymore. You're right. But but the flip side's important too. Like we saw this in the 1800s. Eagles Semmelweis uh, says you got to wash your hands before going from the morgue to the birthing room so that babies don't die and mothers don't die. He, you know, 
he he they they, they trashed him, put him oh, in yeah. a mental institution. He, he, he was skeptical of the science, and he was a scientist. I so, tell that to my kids every uh, time they don't wash don't their know. hands before they eat chicken nuggets. You know, uh, that's a, that's probably a better technique than my dad did. He told me at night when I'm asleep, there's going to be rats all over my face if I don't wash my face <laughs> before going to sleep. Pleasant so dreams, that honey. That really scared Pleasant the hell dreams. out of me. <laughs> yeah. So 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 yeah, we're in this weird time where you know. Let me ask you this: like, I was at a dinner a few weeks ago where it was a bunch of physicists and physics writers. And if I say the names, you would certainly know them. And like one person had even won the Pulitzer Prize in writing about physics. Another person had was a, was a well-known Columbia professor of physics and had written a bunch of books and, and so on. And they were as the most anti-science people I've ever met. Like they were trashing genomics, AI, space tourism. You know, the fact that we could send a regular citizen into space, they thought this was like the grossest example of capitalism Then there shouldn't be space. It was just the, these quote unquote space tourists were like just uh, uh, billionaires who were like, you know, virtue signaling and blah, blah, blah. And I, 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 I said to them, I, couldn't, I can't believe I'm hearing all this from a bunch of scientists. Like, like the TV show Star Trek was a show about space tourism. <laughs> like it's, you know, they weren't allowed to interfere with anything and they were just exploring the final frontier. That's it. And why, why are, why were physicists, why are physicists so anti-science? Why are, why are academics so anti-innovation? Well, I think at some level there's a deep distrust of the financial kind of compensation that comes with technological, um, you know, kind of a scaling to something technologically uh, useful. And I, I often say, you know, it's too bad that, that physics produces technology, you know, the basic physics, because then you come to rely on it. It's too bad that scientists prevented, you know, the, uh, the, the killing of millions more people, perhaps, through the invention of the atomic bomb. And people, what are you talking about? Why is it too bad? Because now it's like relied upon for everything. And now we've unleashed and released, you know, kind of this, this potential for, for, you know, planetary scale Armageddon, in many ways, you know, AI to, and it's not just physicists or only physicists or mainly physicists, but, um, you know, molecular biologists, which is a branch of physics in some ways, to nuclear physics, and then perhaps to, you know, physics of, of uh, you know, much more powerful and, and, and capable theories and technology. So, yes, it, it, there's a deep distrust of monetization. I don't know why that is. I think physicists feel like, oh, you're a loser if you if you sell out and you should be pure and be poor and, you know, just do it for the pleasure of it. And you'll always hear, you know, it's kind of a, just an example of survivor bias, right? You know, when you win a Nobel Prize, oh, it's just like, oh, I wouldn't, I would have just done it for the thrill of doing the work. Okay, well, I don't see you like, you know, giving back your Nobel Prize or donating it. In fact, I see you selling it and I see you opining in the New York Times about who should be president and what should we do with Iran. And, you know, uh, so, you know, I see you leveraging it rather than, you know, so that's fine. That, but don't, don't denigrate, you know, kind of the, the production of tech. I mean, technology, as Arthur C. Clarke said, you know, is, is indistinguishable from magic and, at a certain level. And want, don't we all want more magic that's, that's real? Right. And I, but you know what? I think maybe we don't because maybe there's a certain nostalgia in that we love the magic. We love looking at the stars when we were kids and respecting the magic of it, the mystery of it. And as the mystery gets uncovered, maybe there's a combination of jealousy, nostalgia, missing the magic, yeah, missing that's the mystery. What, uh, 
it, well, you re, you read a book, you read a book not for the conclusion, but for the mystery along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let me uh, refer you. You mentioned Walter White uh, a little bit ago, right? We're talking about aged people. Um, I, oh, we're talking about great chemists. Okay. Yeah. So I want to talk about. Remember the other person that they thought uh, Walter White was was Walt Whitman. Walt Whitman has the following poem, and I'm going to read it to you. It's called When I Heard the Learned Astronomer by Walt Whitman. When I heard the learned astronomer, when the proofs, the figures were ranged in columns before me, when I was shown the charts, the diagrams to add, to divide, and measure them, when sitting I heard the astronomer where he lectured with much applause in the lecture room, how soon accountable, unaccountable I became tired and sick. Till rising and gliding out, I wandered off by myself in the mystical, moist night air and from time to time looked up in perfect silence at the stars. So he's like declaring that, you know, this astronomer has robbed the majesty, the magic, the mystery, mm. and perhaps the, the inexplicable and the, 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 you know, the poltergeist and the machine. And this is decrying that. And I think, as Feynman said... You know, knowing the science behind it makes me appreciate it all the more. And I think I've talked about this maybe in the past with you. When I look out at a, um, when I look out and, and see phenomena like the reddening of the sun at sunset, um, or I see these distant stars and I see why they uh, twinkle, I, I can appreciate them and their beauty as much as you can, James as a non-astronomer, but I actually appreciate them much more. And it's just like with your, do you love Robin more now or when you met her in the first day you met her? Definitely when I met her. Okay. So she's hopefully, <laughs> uh, you know, not listening to this podcast. She doesn't listen to your podcast. I know that. So you've grown to love her the more that you've known about her and these little, well, I mean, love changes, like love matures, right? Yeah. Like, but, but I'm saying it know, intensifies. Do you love your child more now than on the day she was born? Uh, I am better friends with her now than on the day she was born. I would say the love is equal. You monster. Okay, what if? Well, how about this, James? Let me let me prove that you're wrong and that you're you're not being honest with yourself. Um, let me tell you, I just took a paternity test, and uh, your beautiful daughter, um, you know, it just came back that actually I don't love her anymore. <laughs> right. So, what does that mean? You love her when she was born? What, what What does that even mean? What has she done? What has she anyway? You would love her the same, right? Because you've had so much together time, and the blood yeah, yeah, is. Yeah. So all I'm saying is, the more you, le- the more I learn about the universe the more astounding it is, the more uh, that I have a deep and abiding um, infatuation with it. Uh, although it's but that's you. started with but it. That's you like, but I started like, like you. I wasn't always an astronomer, James. I, I started off like Walt Whitman and James Altucher. And now I've become like more, you know, Brian Keating. And now I can appreciate that. And the, why do you limit me? As Walt Whitman said, and he didn't even take his own advice, that, that little schmuck. He said, I contain multitudes. Do I contradict myself? Well, what, what is wrong with that? What is wrong with me saying, I actually appreciate it more than you, and you can have what I have, James, and even deepen it more. You know, if someone told me I can love my wife even more, and here's this course, or, you know, here's a James Altich or Robin, Altich, you know, kind of a 12-step program, I would take it because there are very few ways and avenues designed that give provided great guarantees of deepening love and uh, abiding infatuation. But I, I, I'm like you in that, I, in terms of the science, I appreciate the knowledge more than the majesty. Like to me, having the knowledge gives the universe more majesty, but I was surprised. Like you, like the way you're talking right now is the opposite of how these other physicists I met 
were talking. Like I was so astonished. I can't, I, you have to at, tell me off the air who these people are because yeah, I yeah. Smack I, 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 I and and I'm always honest about myself, but I don't ever want to like put other people no, I know. down. And but but I was surprised how anti-science as a group these scientists were. It's not surprising. Like they literally were like, CRISPR is going to destroy the world. AI is going to destroy the world. Physics, you know, and they were physicists. Physics is like, oh, just breeding these billionaire, you know, space tourists. And they were horrified. Well, I, I would love to know about them. I mean, uh, I often phrase it in the form of another great statement by Richard Feynman. He used to say, like, if you ask a normal person, quote unquote, um, would you like to live forever? They'll say, no, you know, I wouldn't want to see everybody die and, and all this. But if you ask a scientist, they'll say, yeah, I'd love to see what the physics of the 29th century is going to be. I'd love to see if we are alone in the universe. I'd love- so the, the physicists, I always say, are, are like children. They're curious. They're inquisitive. They're imaginative. They are usually uh, iconoclastic, anti-authoritarian they um, are jealous. They're petty. They don't share their toys with others. And they have all the bad you know, qualities of kids. There's no such thing as a single-edged sword. So I think you know, when we look at what, uh, what scientists should do, I, I would say that a scientist should be the most excited about the prospects. You know, if you can create something, yes, is it going to be in the hands of, of, of Joe Biden instead of or Vladimir Putin? That, that, that is true. Does that mean we shouldn't have invented it? I mean, just take an absurdity. Should we not have invented the, the transistor, which is invented by physicists? Is that a net bad? I mean, is that net negative? Because we have online harassment and we have Kardashians. You know, I mean, I, I, I don't think so. I love the, by the way, I love the Kardashians. I do too. So I, she did I, a great interview with uh, this guy, Jay Shetty, uh, that I actually sent to my wife and it made me really appreciate her uh, very much so. Anyway. Oh, I have to listen to that. I've I've been on Jay Shetty's show as well, and uh, uh, I didn't know I, he's interviewed Khloe Kardashian a few years ago, and then he just had Kim. I guess on, he yeah. Just, really? Yeah, I'll, I'll have to listen to that. That's great. But uh, you know, so so again, I agree. We're, we invent all these things. There's kind of everything with good intentions has some bad consequences. We've seen this over and over again in, in every field, and but it does innovation sort of happens by itself without. In, you know, regardless of the individuals, That's right. because there's a, there's there's enough people being thrown in every problem that someone's going to solve it. Like the theory of relativity, if Einstein hadn't solved it, there were 20 people right behind him, all ready to go. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, no, I I don't disagree with that. I mean, I think uh, there are things like the uh, Mona Lisa, which just would not exist. It wouldn't be. It might there might be some great painting or whatever, uh, but it wouldn't exist in the way that we uh, that we know and love the Mona Lisa. But you're right, the theory of relativity, someone else would have discovered it. And in fact, some, several people were very close to it, uh, as was Einstein, you know, right, even up until the time of Einstein. So I think you're absolutely right. And we kind of give scientists too, many, uh, too much credit uh, when, uh, in fact, we're, there, there's a creative process and aspect of science, but there's also a deep luck and serendipitous aspect of science that we shouldn't overlook. Like with everything, like I'll still give complete credit to the scientists, like Einstein's the guy, yeah. Isaac Newton's the guy, Galileo's the guy. Um, I should be saying there's a, was it Francis Crick's the woman, you know, for oh, Francis Crick is a man. Yeah. Uh, Rosalind oh, Franklin. Oh, oh, yeah, Rosalind Franklin. I see. I got that totally <laughs> wrong. I'm like an canceled. Idiot. Every time we talk, I, you get canceled. <laughs> it's true, but actually, I, I took an IQ test and it was about sixty. So <laughs> I just pretend that to high? be smart. I'm, you know, people think <laughs> people say I, we only use ten percent of our brains, and someday I aspire to do that as well. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so so 
uh, so it's not to be totally like uh, an, anti the individual, but it's it's like things move forward no matter what, and we can't stop it. People say we need to regulate AI. Sorry, you cannot stop it. Right, like it's not going to stop. You can't stop all the things that are that are happening right now. Yeah. Um, but let me ask you a question now. Come, go into a different topic. Yeah. You're going on Joe Rogan what day? Uh, supposedly the 21st of August. All right. So wh- why, how did he, let's, let's, let's work on this. Let's think, let's make you the best Joe Rogan guest ever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well okay. So first of all, I wanna, I, let's, let's, let me, let me take the reins for a second as the, as the more experienced podcaster here, James, not, not the guy, <laughs> you know, I have to tell you, cause a lot of your audience and my audience be new to our conversations, but I only, uh, so I met you at TEDx San Diego in 2014 and Jay will put a link to our TED talks there and yours has a, you know, exponentially more than my views. But um, we met then, I'd already followed you for many, many years and I'd, you know, really excited to meet you. You were with your previous wife at the time. You were very flustered. You almost left the arena. It was very hard to talk. So when I became a semi-connected podcaster um, and I went on the Jordan Harbinger show, I asked Jordan for one and only one connection. I didn't ask him to be connected to Kobe Bryant. I didn't ask him to be connected to Neil deGrasse Tyson. I asked him to be connected to you because you had such a, a huge impact on my life. And, um, you know, it was long before I really was thinking podcasting could be my second mountain, as David Brooks calls it, you know, something I can do in my older age and maturity, bringing wisdom, um, not just knowledge to, uh, to the world of minds that I'm attempting to connect. So anyway, um, when I did that, you know, partially it was because you're just a relentless student of the craft of podcasting. And I really see you in the same kind of genre as Joe Rogan. And, um, and, and it's not just because of your physical prowess and your, you know, I mean, you're a comedian, <laughs> you were a comedian. I mean, there's so many ways that you guys are similar. Uh, and uh, except for the hair, uh, he, he could aspire to your hair. So right. I want you to do something that might be hard for you and kind of critique me uh, and how I am as a guest, uh, and I know it's not hard, it's hard for you uh, because you, know, you, you kind of should feel paternalistically towards me, although we're almost the same age. But the bottom line is I, I've been told some tough love from previous huge podcasts that I've been on. Uh, I can explain the origin story, but that's, you know, I don't think that'll be super interesting. I, I would love it if you taught me kind of how I, Brian Keating, can be the best guest and what you would do if you were me to take advantage of a possibly once in a lifetime experience, not for monetary gain, but just for my own benefit, Joe's benefit, sure. and his audience's benefit. I'm ready for you, James. Sure. And, and let me just say, you're a great guest. You've been on this podcast how many times? Like 10 so, times. Uh, yeah, so you're, you, obviously, if you were a bad guest, <laughs> and I have occasionally bad guests, yeah. you, weren't, you wouldn't have come on again. Um, so, so. I always enjoy having you on. It's always a good experience. So we're just talking in kind of, you know, small amounts here and there, nor am I the expert necessarily on what makes a great guest. It's just a great guest for me. And for me, a great guest, which again, I consider you a great guest is where it's more of a conversation with friends. And of course there's something I'm curious about. So I, you came on many times. We did a whole series of how theories of how the universe was born, something you were an expert in, but I was not. So I had questions. So it was in that way, it's not quite a conversation with friends, which is totally bi-directional, but it's more unidirectional. Like it's you're, t- I'm asking questions. You're telling me answers. And, uh, so, so 
in that sense, I don't want nothing here as a criticism, but let's brainstorm how you going on Joe Rogan could be as entertaining and interesting as possible. What's a podcast, but let's say an extreme form of edutainment, the best podcasts, even comedian podcasts. And let's say I'm not counting Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan's a comedian, but let's say pure comedian podcasts. They're not just like a bunch of guys telling jokes. They're like history hyenas, which I've been on, which was Chris Stefano and Giannis Papas, two great comedians. Mm -hmm. They, the topics were, were still history. And so even if they would only talk for 10 minutes out of an hour about history, and then it was a hilarious podcast, they, they still had like a backbone of, of education and entertainment. Mm -hmm. They were entertainers talking about something educational and Joe Rogan, I would say, is not quite an interview podcast. He is in that category, but I really think, and there's a couple of factors here, I really think he's best when he's having a conversation with friends. And and he pulls that off very well, even if he doesn't know you. So he's the the best at that. Like he's very he has a lot of experience and making people feel very comfortable very quickly. And uh and making it a conversation with friends, even though he's probably more curious, he has someone on because he's curious. And again, that's what makes it an interview podcast. And the other person then gives their lecture or their, or they slice it up his in, in their own way, the answers to his questions. But still, I feel he does a much better job than me at transforming it from an interview into a conversation with friends. Mm -hmm. And so I'll be curious how he does that with you. Having a lot of experience with you as a guest, I'll be curious how he breaks you down (laughs) to to do his style. Um, And I would say, before getting into anything remotely seeming like criticism, why is he asked, why why did he ask you on? Like, is it, does he want to find out about UFOs and what this recent, you know, uh, statements from the uh, whistleblower on UFOs or what, what's the reason? Oh, I think the, well, the inciting incident, as they say, was that um, he had on a gentleman from the Discovery Institute named Stephen C. Meyer, who is a uh, proponent of intelligent design. And they were talking about the the James Webb Space Telescope results, the same ones that you and I were talking about earlier. And Stephen Meyer mentioned, you should really talk to Brian Keating about this. Uh, on the show, and it's actually one of the rare, because he doesn't put his show on YouTube anymore, but it was one of the clips that they, the only clip that he put on YouTube from that interview. So I was pretty flattered by that. Um, and my friend uh, J- uh, Eric Weinstein has mentioned me multiple times on the podcast uh, uh, as well uh, on the air to Joe, and that's flattering about, you know, uh, both the UFO topic and the origin of the universe topic. And then last but not least, uh, Jordan Peterson, you'll become friendly with and um, teaching at his university uh, this this fall. He has also, you know, recommended and was gracious to to kind of spread the word to Joe and introduced us. And then I was just very flattered that Joe agreed. It was kind of funny. Joe sent me an email. He's like, oh, I'd love to have you on and talk about, you know, all these research and stuff. And then I didn't get his email. It got like deleted, but his booking agent, it's pretty amazing. He does all his own booking, (laughs) Joe does. But then he has a booking agent who already was on the case and he took the opportunity and we already set up the podcast. And like three days later, Joe Rogan's like, Brian, I hate to bother you, uh, but will you, you know, come on the podcast? Otherwise, you know, I have to, we'll have to find another guest. I'm like, holy crap. He doesn't know that I already am, I'm like booked and traveling to Austin on this day. 
Uh, so it's pretty funny. So I apologize. And so it's just, he's a very down to earth guy. I mean, that guy, so many, and he's doing his own booking and like making sure I have the right hotel and, and, uh, there's a car waiting for, you know, it's just an amazing, gracious, um, individual. So I'm really like, that's more or less the origin of how it happened. Yeah, that's great. And so again, I, I would assume this is going to be a conversation more just as much as it'll be an interview. Like obviously he's going to ask you questions about things he doesn't know about and wants to learn about, like whether it's the James Webb telescope or UFOs, but don't be afraid to talk about anything. <laughs> like you can talk about anything. You're just two guys, two smart guys talking about what you, the fact that you want to talk about something that makes it worth talking about. I would have that mindset that it could be about anything like parenting or <laughs> politics or physics or economics. Like, you're a smart guy. He's a smart guy. If the conversation goes someplace, it's supposed to go to that place. So again, you don't have to stay in your lane. This is what we were talking about earlier. Like just because you're a physicist doesn't mean you have to stay in your lane. You could be in other lanes. You're a very smart person and, and have lots of interesting things to say. And, but the other thing is like, I'll tell you one story. So when I was in college, I would go out, uh, you know, let's say to a bar with a friend of mine and we would try to talk to girls. And we were both two unattractive people trying to talk to girls in a bar. And he was a very good conversationalist. He'd always be able to, it wasn't necessarily a good looking guy, but always good at like sparking a conversation, would always get the phone numbers. I would get zero. And finally he told me, James, when you talk and tell a story, take out every other word. <laughs> That's how I pack that, now. That's how I tell my wife to pack. <laughs> take out every other piece of clothes. Yeah, that's impossible though for for many people. But uh, but I really took that to heart. That became like the best writing advice I've ever received was to take out every other word. Like I I edit everything I write like a hundred times just to take out word after word after word. And it's the same thing with conversations. Like you know a lot, Brian. So you know everything about physics. Try not to use big words mm -hmm. <laughs> like lacuna. <laughs> Don't use lacuna. <laughs> But I also don't want to um, be like, oh, you're a meathead, you're a UFC guy, Joe, you know, a fear factor. No, no, it's not. Because he always denigrates himself, Joe. yeah. Right, it says audience. It, this is about, this is about, about, do you know, do you know the, you ever heard of the Flesher-Kincaid score, the FK score? No. So the Flesher-Kincaid score is um, a way to calculate the grade level of a piece of writing. So you can give me a piece of text. I could, there's, and if you Google FK calculator, there are calculators all over the internet that if I feed in an entire book, even it'll tell me the grade level. Oh, this is at a 12th grade level. This is at a third grade level. This is at a, I, I put in a, a, a grad student's email to me once and it was at an 18th grade level. And I told the guy, don't write like this anymore because nobody can understand anything you write. And so guess what old man in the sea is, what the FK score of the, Maybe the best. Oh, it's like fifth grade in history. Or fifth grade. Yeah. Level, yeah. Yeah. So Ernest Hemingway's the book that basically clinched the Nobel Prize for him in literature was written at a approximately fifth to sixth grade level, and that's like the actually the optimal for a written book. That doesn't mean the audience is stupid. It just means the audience wants to enjoy a good book, and fifth and sixth grade level is the best way to hit mm -hmm. the the world audience uh, at and. You're an academic, but you're not insecure about your intelligence. I understand sometimes why some people talk smart. It's because they're actually insecure about their intelligence. But you aren't insecure about your intelligence, but you are very smart. And, I, and sometimes maybe you don't realize people understand things without you having to 
explain at the neutrino level, you know, what it is that's going mm-hmm. on. Or very complicated things. And so I would just take that viewpoint mm-hmm. that like you're you're not it's not about Joe being smart or not. It's just the audience enjoys an FK score of six. Well, and I mean, that's, that's really helpful. I guess the thing is, so here's a common dilemma that I'm worried about occurring. And I've been accused by this very famous podcaster uh, off the air with love and respect, you know, of name dropping. And when I was on uh, his podcast and, uh, and he's been on Rogan show and, and he said, you know, you have to be careful, but here, here's the deal. So one, one thing that's definitely going to come up are these UFO hearings, which, you know, I don't think we have enough time today to talk about before I have to run. But, um, but the, the fact is uh, there's a lot of uh, meat there for me to talk about, so much so that I've had on some of the world's experts, including one of these eyewitnesses, you know, Navy F-18 pilots uh, that witnessed these Tic Tacs and uh, other phenomena that were the subject of this congressional hearing that got, you know, 10 million views last week in, in Congress along with this guy who talked about you know, non-human biologics. Uh, I haven't had him on. So now I'm talking to Joe, and he says, what do you make of these aliens? Am I to say, uh, in fear of name-dropping, you know, like, well, I, I shouldn't say I had on these guys or gals. No, 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 no. I, uh, it's okay to name-drop. Here's what it's not okay to do. Uh, and, gosh, I was on this TV. John Stossel, mm-hmm. is that his name? Yeah, yeah. I was on, once on this, uh, this show with with John Stossel, and there was an economist on. And every time he made a statement, he would say something like, you know, as as so-and-so said in their paper in 1979, XYZ. And in the commercial break, John Stossel said, don't, you don't need to refer to anybody else. It's your theory, your ideas. Like it doesn't mean, it doesn't matter. Nobody gives a shit who, what paper you're quoting. And and they don't care. They don't remember. Just own it. Just take the, mm. the theory and it's yours. And so when you name drop and say, oh, I had the F-18 guy on, that's important name dropping. That's the guy who saw with his own right. eyes a UFO. So I want to hear what you have to say about mm-hmm. him. That's, I don't, I, oh yeah, your podcast is popular. You've had import, big names on. That's great. That's also establishing who you are. It's mm-hmm. not like, it's not name dropping. It's not like, well, when I was having dinner with Barack Obama and we talked about UFOs, I said this, that would be more name dropping. And you don't do that. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, if you, if you are, are, you don't have to quote somebody who wrote a book in 1923 about UFOs. But if you're referring to what's the guy's name, Garush, who who's the whistleblower, you have to say his name. Mm-hmm. Or if you're talking to the F-18 guy or Avi Loeb or whatever, yeah. you you have to say his name. But again, there's a balance. Like someone talking to you directly as opposed to something you read. Mm-hmm. You don't have to, you know, if you're just repeating somebody's theory. You don't have to say who the theory was. Yeah. It's your theory now. So the other thing I've heard that's how you could avoid half of that. Yeah. And the other thing I've heard is um, this might make it really uncomfortable just because <laughs> I think the job of a scientist is to criticize the ideas. Obviously, I'm not going to criticize the people, but let's say I don't believe, you know, the government or, you know, or I don't believe it's pilot or I don't believe Eric Weinstein uh, about peer review or something like that. He's had these people on Joe's show. Joe is reputedly, reportedly gives out, you know, his cell phone number to guests and they keep in touch. And he's genuinely, a genuinely wonderful human being, a mensch, as we say, in the old country, in the alt country. Um, <laughs> I 
don't feel as comfortable. What if I have to criticize my good friend, Eric? Uh, I'm not going to criticize his, you know, personally, but let's say, you know, something Eric's on about peer review and he thinks it's stupid and we shouldn't have, not stupid. He thinks we shouldn't have it. It's counterproductive. Uh, Jeffrey Epstein's father is involved in the origin story of it. Blah, blah, blah. CIA, this thing, that Pergamon press. Um, now, Joe is defensive, I've heard, of his guests because they're his friends. Um, you know, we have a different, you know, I have on people on my podcast, I wouldn't necessarily trust some of them, okay. you know, to have dinner with, let alone like call, give my cell phone number and hang out with. So how do I navigate those rocky shoals? With, with storytelling. Now, if he, say, if he says, like, Brian, uh, I heard you're critical of Eric Weinstein's peer review ideas. I wouldn't say you know, Eric Weinstein's just an idiot about this. Like, of course you need peer review. How else should people know that there's been social proof uh, or authority on these articles? I wouldn't say that. I would say, look, Eric and I talk about this all the time. Last time we talked about it, I said to him, Eric, how would the regular person, you're a smart guy, Eric. So how would all the people less intelligent than you know to trust your articles Mm -hmm. if it's not peer reviewed? Like that's Yes, there are problems with peer review because there's politics in every area of life, including science. Yes, there's problems with peer review because people are afraid of being canceled you know, through association. They reviewed your paper and later on you turn out to be this or that. So yes, there's problems with it. Let's think, uh, so I told Eric, can we, I asked him, can we fix these problems? And look, it's an ongoing discussion. Be skeptical of the skeptics. Mm-hmm. And, and Eric agreed. Yeah. So now that's, a good... that's the story. Yeah. Okay, hold on one second. My daughter is playing Taylor Swift in here. Hold on one second. Computer, stop. She's playing it somehow. <laughs> She's convinced Taylor Swift to come out. Um, okay, next, maybe the final question before I have to run today, uh, sure. James, is the following. When I, um, hold on a second. Computer, stop. I'm going to unplug this damn thing. Hold on a second. Cut this, Jay, cut this out. Jake, he can't even get his computer to work right. I was going to believe bicep before it kills. Before Taylor Swift kills me. Okay. Um, so it was good. Good audio quality though on it. That it I, is good. It is, and I yeah, I've changed yeah. it from the uh, A L X E A uh, name to <laughs> computer, and I can do it. I ask it to open the pod bay doors as well. <laughs> okay. So the the final sort of speak question is uh, one of the hallmarks that I respect and try to emulate about you, and it's made my life really hard, is on my podcast, I don't like to ever have an author on when I haven't read his or her book. And you taught me some hacks and tricks, uh, one of which was read the acknowledgments, read the last chapter, um, when you can't read the whole thing. You can skip certain things, like when the author starts talking about really boring stuff, like like the fusion of the hydrogen and the CMB. Like you literally said that on an episode, not related to me, but somebody else. And you were talking. I know you were talking about my book. <laughs> no, I don't think I don't think I was referring. No, to your we book. talked about I this. I swear to God, because I actually I, I actually called you out, and you were happy about it. But then I did something. I said, you know how James, you can demonstrate that you really love and engage with the author's book most of all. I said, you point out a typo, a significant logical error or typo in their book. And then I told you about an error in Choose Yourself, which I was very proud about. That, that is true. That definitely, they wake up to anyway, that. I think, um, and I might have made a faux pas because I sent Joe copies of my books. But reportedly, he doesn't, he's not going to read them. And 
I'm wondering about going in there. There's the whole, uh, uh, what was his name? Larry uh, King. Thing. Where yeah. he wouldn't read anything, like you and Cal talked about that many times, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, which is a very viable interview strategy. But I don't know if that's like I don't know that he's well. I know he's he's gonna do some research, but like otherwise he doesn't know me. I mean, I've I've been told, well, if you've gotten an invitation, so don't even worry. You don't have to prove yourself anymore. But like, how much should I? And then if I don't, if I assume that he didn't read anything, which is fine. And I told him, like, I'm not giving you homework assignments. I'm just, yeah, I'm not that much of a professor. Yeah. But um, how can I not seem slimy salesman-y when I say, as I describe in my book, you know, or like... Don't say, don't say, as I describe in my book. Just tell the story. Same with the podcast. Like, have, as I had on my podcast, uh, you know... Right, no, you just say, I've spoken to... Now, you could... Uh, you Because I do want people to know about my podcast and my books, obviously. Oh, don't worry about that. They're, if you're a good guest, they're going to look you up. Yeah. So... You know, he'll, you'll, if let's say you told the story about losing the Nobel Prize, he's going to say you wrote a book on that. He will say that. Trust me, he will say that. You don't need to advertise it. And look, again, what you want, your goal, let, let's now talk technically in the weeds. Your goal is you want clips to appear on YouTube that are interesting. And a clip, let's say, is three minutes, three to five minutes, maybe longer, maybe shorter. So what, what things that you feel right now are unique and you have strong opinions on that are clippable, that are like three minute stories. So your opinion on UFOs. I don't uh, believe, uh, I don't uh, believe life exists in the universe, uh, you know, beyond a very small probability, let alone technological life. That's pretty controversial. He does. So that's a clip that, and he, if he disagrees, that's great. But think of simple ways to say, Let's do this thought experiment, Joe. Imagine if there is like blah, blah, blah. So three-minute clip on a strong opinion that's in the news where you're taking a different stance. Because right now people are leaning towards, oh, a government whistleblower with zero evidence says there's UFOs. So people are leaning towards that the UFOs have happened. So you're going to be contrary to that, not because you're trying to be popular, but because you legitimately are contrary and make it clippable. Very simple and easy to explain in three minutes, why they don't exist. And think of like a thought experiment you, you and Joe can participate in a conversation on. What's another opinion that's clippable? Uh, that I believe the universe may not have had a single Big Bang and may be, you know, uh, much, much uh, different, that um, there may be uh, consilience between, I won't use that word, but between a biblical <laughs> narrative. Um, I believe that... Um, that's that, that, by the way, is clippable, that... The Bible and scientists could both be correct at the same time. Now, this is a common theme among biblical scientists that they, this, this has been discussed for 50 years, but it's not well known among, let's say, the average listener that the Bible and extreme physics could be you know, connected in any way. And that is clippable. What's a political thing you could say? That has nothing to do with physics. Uh, well, Again, culturally, you're a smart person. Yeah. I think educational system, you know, is uh, is destined for the ash, you know, bin of history that we need to complete. Not not just you know reformation. We basically need to tear it down. That's one controversial opinion. So 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 make it a little more extreme. Kids are going to grow up. If not your kids, your grandkids are going to grow up stupid if they continue with the current educational system. Yep. Like take it, take it two levels more extreme. Okay, uh, something like that. I believe the Nobel Prize is detrimental to science and society. 
Uh, that's something that yeah. he probably won't. You know, he's talked about Nobel Prize. He's had on Nobel Prize winners. Um, okay, so but now, okay, he's defensive though of his guests. I won't like, mention the guests, but right. Mm-hmm. I think so. Just be you know, but uh, you know the other thing is, despite all this, don't don't worry too much is another important thing. Mm-hmm. Like don't. Again, it's just a conversation, so don't catch yourself thinking in the middle of this. Oh, I have to get this, this is in, interesting, right, yeah. but I, uh, but I don't want to be defensive. Do zero marketing of podcast or book. They will come up in the conversation. Don't worry about that. Your only focus is clips, mm-hmm. okay, and conversation. Yeah, meta is conversation. Tactical is clips. All right, James. Well, this has been wonderful and and uh, incredibly helpful and preparatory. I hope so. Hopefully, I won't be nervous, but it'll be interesting to see uh, after I. That's the real key: is don't worry about any of these things, and you can ignore everything I said. Just be yourself, and it's going to be great. You're going to be great. I hate myself. What are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to listen. I'm going to listen to that podcast, and I listen to very few podcasts. I really appreciate it, James. It means so much to me. Coming from my podcast mentor and friend, and uh, hopefully we'll get together and do an in-person podcast ourselves one of these days. Eventually, yeah. All right, well, thanks a lot, Brian, and- uh, Thanks, James. Thanks, Jay. And enjoy. Thank you.